Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. The potential impact of variants aside, it's clear that the pandemic's receded in the U.S. Even so, stimulus and forbearance programs on federal, state, and local levels continue at a record pace. This seems to be morphing from needed social emergency economic assistance to social engineering. Today in our legal segment, we'll analyze some of the economic factors impacting recovery in the U.S. And we'll look at a recent COVID-19 regulation change issued by the CFPB to prolong foreclosure relief into 2022 and beyond. 1% mortgage rates by fall? In our interview segment, I'll be interviewing Stephen Van Meter, a noted financial advisor who believes this may be just around the corner. Stephen has espoused a contrarian position over the last year asserting that government bond yields would nosedive, when almost everyone else was and still is calling for inflation and skyrocketing rates. Stay tuned for this fascinating interview. And finally, in our Where's the Love segment, We'll find the love in the American people. Join me and my lovely assistant, the one and only Marty Shear, as we go across the country to interview people asking one simple question. If you were president of the United States for only one day and could do one thing to make this country better, what would you do? You may be surprised at some of the answers we received. But first, our legal segment. The law. The Treasury Department reported during the first week of July 2021 that only $1.5 billion of an initial $25 billion in emergency aid had been spent by the end of May. More money started to flow since then, but state and local governments have taken months to get their programs up and running. But in the meantime, more than 9 million Americans said in May that they wanted the jobs and they couldn't find them. However, the Wall Street Journal reported that companies advised them that they had more than 9 million jobs open that weren't being filled, a record high. So as the economy reopens, the process of matching laid-off workers to jobs is proving to be slow and complicated. And it's clear that government policy is impacting this. A recent ZipRecruiter survey found that 70% of job seekers who last worked in the leisure and hospitality industry say they're now looking for work in a different industry. In addition, 55% of job applicants want remote jobs. An April survey of U.S. workers who lost jobs in the pandemic that was conducted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas found that over 30% of workers didn't want to return to their old jobs. On a personal observation, in June of this year, I was traveling from Florida to Boston. Everywhere I went, businesses were seemingly desperate for workers. Everywhere I went, hotels and restaurants were understaffed. In Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
My wife and I met a very friendly homeless person and we ended up taking him out to lunch. Before we left, the restaurant supervisor offered him a job as a cook if he would stay clean and show up on time. Clearly a worker's job market, why is there so many jobs going unfilled? As we discussed in previous episodes, supplemental unemployment benefits continue to pay some workers more than they'd make if they were employed. Since then, new childcare benefits have gone into effect for roughly 39 million households, with about 65 million children or 88% of the children in this country receiving benefits according to the IRS. Payments are on a sliding scale with amounts up to $800 per month available to some people and payments available to joint filers making up to $400,000. There's been a subtle change from pandemic-related relief to general social and economic relief that's using the pandemic as justification to provide the relief. There's a serious question of whether too much aid and forbearance is sapping people of the will to work and changing the economic landscape and encouraging dependence on the government in the United States. Now, even with all the stimulus, either it's in the pipeline or being paid directly, the CFPB's enacted emergency regulations to relax mortgage servicing rules to delay lenders from enforcing foreclosure rights. In some instances, allowing loan modifications to delay payment of delinquency for as long as 40 years, either due on sale or refinance of the home. Let's take a brief look at these new regulations. They affect single-family one through four unit residential properties. First, the CFPB noted that over 7 million borrowers have been placed in existing GSE, or Government Service Enterprise Mortgage Forbearance Programs, and that most of these are going to phase out over the summer. In order to facilitate an orderly exit, the CFPB has issued emergency COVID-19 regulations to take effect on August 31st, 2021. The regulations only cover larger servicers, and there's five key provisions. Early intervention, which means that the servicers on covered loans have to get in touch with the borrower to advise them of their rights to have expanded COVID-19 relief. Early intervention has to occur before the servicer can proceed to start foreclosure. There's streamlined loan modification options and they're directed to borrowers with COVID-19 hardships. The modification, if granted, must cure any pre-existing delinquency upon satisfaction of either a trial modification and its conditions, or acceptance of the final loan modification. And finally, no fees can be charged by the servicer. In essence, what the CFPB is doing is they've relaxed loan modification standards to allow servicers to modify loans that are guaranteed by GSEs such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So again, in other words, more government relief that you and I will eventually be responsible for if it's not repaid. Let's examine some of these loan modification provisions. And again, before I get into the provisions, these are to be provided by servicers if the lender or investor provides them in their normal program or servicing agenda. First, long-term, the loan term can't be extended beyond 480 months from the effective date of the modification. That's 40 years if you don't have a calculator handy. Required principal and interest under the modification can't be increased beyond the payment amount that was in effect before the modification. If the modification permits suspension or delay of certain payments until either sale or refinance, then the suspended amounts don't accrue interest. In other words, no interest on interest, no capitalization of deferred interest payments and charges. The loan servicer can't charge fees for the modification 
and waives all late charges, penalties, or similar charges that were incurred on or after March 1st, 2020, which is considered the onset of the pandemic. The result of the modification must result in the cure of any pre-existing delinquency on the loan or the performance of a trial modification, which is then accepted, ends any pre-existing delinquency. And again, the loan modification has to be because of a COVID-19 related hardship and the CFPB has changed the definition to expand it. So it's not just medical or direct economic impact of the COVID-19 virus. It's really anything that's related to the COVID-19 virus, an expansion of the definition and the rights. One other thing that should be noted is that escrow payments can also be included. Escrow payments meaning advances by the servicer for taxes and insurance that either have occurred or will occur, although not specifically addressed in the regulations, are addressed in the commentary where the CFPB says it's within the discretion of the loan servicer to add those advances onto the loan modification. Think about it. Some borrowers have been in forbearance programs since April of 2020, deferring or suspending payments on their loans for over 17 months. Adding that delinquency and attendant charges to the loan balance and allowing repayment of that plus potentially escrow shortages for up to 40 years, it's no sure bet that's gonna get repaid. It's clearly more hidden stimulus. The only way many of these loans will be repaid is if assets continue to inflate. Everyone's calling for inflation and rising rates. Join me as I interview Steven Van Meter, who thinks that just the opposite may happen. Laws and Real Estate. Stephen, I want to give my audience some background on who you are and how I came into contact with you. I first heard you on a well-known podcast called Macro Voices. And as opposed to the onslaught of guests that were predicting higher interest rates, massive inflation due to money printing, you came on the show and you predicted a nosedive on bond rates, deflationary economic environment, and much lower stock prices in the near future. So I began to follow you, and lo and behold, you've been almost prophetic on your call for lower government bond rates and lower mortgage rates. I characterize you as one part Einstein and one part the Zadie professor. Your podcasts and YouTube videos are animated. You're a forceful advocate for your theories. Your presentations are chock full of charts, stats, and analysis that gets into the weeds in the background of macro policies affecting the Fed and the commercial banking system. And you, know, you advocate that the Fed and banks take actions that directly play out in the stock, bond, and real estate markets. And people following your advice on bonds over the last year would have done extremely well. So welcome, Steve Van Meter. Well, thank you, Spencer. That that was an incredible introduction, and uh, I'm I haven't been right about stocks yet. And over the last year, bonds haven't done that well, but the last three months uh, they have, and there's a lot more to come. So it's it's pretty exciting to watch this start to unfold now. It really is. You're a financial advisor. You've got your own company. Give my listeners just a little bit of background on what services you provide and how you got in the business. Sure. Um, I'm a certified financial planner, but most of what I do is money management. I created a, a very unique uh, long equity strategy with a hedging mechanism. It's a fully formula-based strategy called Portfolio Shield. And then, uh, as you know, I'm most well known for my uh, macro show on YouTube and uh, many of the other interviews that I do on a regular basis. Yes. 
So let me start off, I'll ask you, the vast consensus of the economic talking heads, they're focused on inflation and runaway inflation. You've been somewhat of a contrarian predicting lower growth and possible deflation. Why? Yeah, that that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, it seems like for decades, uh, maybe as long as I've been alive, I remember even as a kid, people People talking about secular inflation is going to eventually happen. All this debt is going to come to roost. We're going to pay for it. And decade after decade, it didn't happen. And it seems like a logical conclusion that it's an inevitable force that, you know, eventually monetary policy will create inflation. But what we see in our actual monetary system is it's extremely deflationary. In fact, I like to think of the Fed as a firefighter, and they were purposely built to fight the fire of inflation. They were never designed to go out and create the fire of inflation, but yet they have you know very limited policy tools and they don't quite work as well to create inflation over a sustainable basis. They can do it in bursts. But right now, a lot of people are looking at what's going on and seeing the year-over-year -year rate of the consumer price index shoot higher, and it's finally validation. For decades, we've been calling for inflation. Here it is. It's all the Fed's fault. And yet, Spencer, what I'm struggling with understanding is how do these people not understand that we completely shut down the global economy, and in the United States, we paid people money to stay at home. And in fact, for some people, they got paid more than they were earning at work. And they took that money and they cleared the shelves off of retailers. And everybody knows this because at one point we all did go to the grocery store and see aisle and aisle and aisle of empty shelves. And because people stayed home so long because of the pandemic, the supply chain is, is not running at full force. Factories aren't running at full force. Mines aren't running. Things aren't coming out of the ground like they should. And yet the answer is, okay, this is secular inflation. And I think the truth is, as more people go back to work, as these unemployment benefits start to go away, that what we'll see is the deflationary forces of the monetary system come back and the negative impacts that quantitative easing has. Powerful. Um, there's a stark contradiction between rising commodity prices and declining treasury bond yields. Is this a proxy battle between the, the argument of inflation versus deflation in your mind? Absolutely. I mean, right now, anyone on the inflation camp is pointing at commodity prices and everyone on the deflation camp is pointing at the, the much wiser bond market. And it, it makes sense because commodity prices historically are a sign of inflation, but it's really important to understand when they are and when they aren't. Because if say gasoline prices are rising, but I don't have the income to afford those higher prices, then they become deflationary in the sense that I now have to take spending away from other areas to afford these higher you know, food prices, energy prices, shelter prices, and that takes away from discretionary spending, which is inherently deflationary. Now, if my wages are rising and the money supply is growing fast enough, then I can afford those higher prices and they stick, and then you can possibly get sustainable inflation. But yet back in March, as you mentioned, uh, Treasury yields peaked and they signaled and said, they said, doesn't matter how high the CBI goes, this isn't going to hold. And when in doubt, always look to the bond market because it knows things long before the rest of the market figures it out. Good point. Uh, let me uh, digress for one second because uh, I've been around longer than Abe Lincoln and I was back in the days when there really was what they call stagflation, which you just described. So why isn't that going to be the result then? If 
there needs to be higher income wage growth and everything else to be able to support the inflationary rise that people are talking about. Why isn't that going to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people are talking about stagflation. And, and just for your listeners to be clear, stagflation is when you see rising consumer prices and rising unemployment. And the problem with that today is if we see rising unemployment, which appears at the moment that the unemployment numbers have bottomed and are actually headed up, which is dangerous, without the extended unemployment benefits and without the moratorium on rent and student loans and other things that people are not paying on, they will have less income. So it's not possible to sustain higher prices. Now, retailers and wholesalers and manufacturers are pushing and trying to raise their prices, but anyone who's owned a business and had an inventory knows that if you price your products too high and customers can't afford them, they won't buy them. And ultimately, that's what we're going to see is those higher prices get rejected. So we could have you know, a, a brief period of stagflation, but I don't think it will persist like we've seen uh, you know, perhaps like in the 1970s, which was a much different uh, situation than we see now. All right. Even though there's been massive fiscal stimulus and money printing, one of the reasons you give for the precipitous decline in Treasury bond yields is the concept of the money prison that results from Fed commercial bank swaps. Can you describe this concept of a money prison to my listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest misconception, and it's even fueled, unfortunately, by Fed Chair Powell, uh, that the Fed is printing money. We heard this when he went on 60 Minutes, when he uh, suggested that he was indeed printing money. Now, he's not the first Fed chair to say this, but all of his predecessors that did have recanted their view sometime later. And at the following FOMC meeting during the press conference part, he was asked by a journalist if the Fed was indeed printing money. And he said, well, we, what we are actually doing is changing the nature of a reserve. And what, what he really meant to say for, for your audience is, I'm changing the duration of a bank reserve. That's what quantitative easing does. So when a deposit comes into the bank, or you think of your, your account, your checking or savings account, the bank knows that those deposits are going to be on the book somewhere between three to seven years with an average of about five years of maturity. So the bank has two means that they need to pay their customers interest. They can either lend against that deposit and we're not seeing a large amount of lending right now, or they can go purchase an interest-bearing asset. So what happens is, say a savings account is an asset of a customer and a liability to the bank. So what the bank does is they take the customer's deposit and they purchase various treasury securities in terms of short-term treasury bills and short-term treasury notes. And they swap that liability from the bank to the treasury. So nothing has changed. The customer doesn't know any different because they know their money is good. They can go down and withdraw at any time. The bank knows that the probabilities are they're not going to withdraw it, uh, all of it for a period of five years. So they can stagger out a purchase of T-bills and T-notes to meet the duration requirement. And all the Fed does at this point with quantitative easing is they come in and they take those treasury securities that the bank bought, which we which are called bank reserves and they swap them. So that liability is sitting on the bank's or on the treasury's balance sheet gets shifted to the Fed's balance sheet and the bank receives what's called an overnight bank reserve or what we use the term reserve asset. So what we're doing is taking a bank reserve, which is about five years of maturity, and shrinking it down to overnight. That's where you get the notion as money printing is because 
the reserve asset created by the Fed is effectively cash. But the catch is it's tied up in the commercial banking system because when the Fed gives a bank the reserve asset, that reserve asset is held at a Federal Reserve member bank. So the bank accounts for it on their balance sheet as an asset, but they can't go touch it. They can swap it with other banks if they owe each other money, but it cannot leave the Federal Reserve banking system. And so right, what so happens- that, that's, the money, that's the money prison and in effect, it's not inflationary because it doesn't go out into the economy you get spent, right? Correct. That's what I refer to as the dollar prison. So what appears from the outside looking in is money printing. But if you think of it like, you know, is a prisoner in prison still a, a, a citizen? Yes. Are they a member of society? Yes. But can they leave the walls of the prison? No. And that's what we have to think of as a reserve asset. It's in the system. It just can't leave. It's kind of like Hotel California. You can come, but you can't go. And so indirectly, if you kind of cut out the middleman in that picture, what you find out is a customer deposit is tied. Some of them are tied to a reserve asset, which is held at the Fed. And when you start looking at the commercial banking system, we have a small number of banks that are participate in the system. And particularly here in the U.S., there's two major banks that were beneficiaries of all the stimulus and the money. Uh, you have Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, Wells Fargo did receive some of the money, but back uh, when Wells Fargo was caught up with their scandal of creating bogus accounts under Fed former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, they were penalized and not allowed to expand their balance sheet. So they really didn't take on very much of this money. And then you have Citibank, which is really not a big participant in the retail market. So a lot of this money gets flooded into two banks. And if you think about moving around, if you can only go from one room in your house to the next and then back, well, your velocity or your movement's very limited. You're stuck in prison. And that's how this money gets trapped there and why it appears when we look at the balance sheets of the Fed and the banks that there's all of this money, but yet it's never going anywhere because it's trapped in a dollar prison. Fascinating. Well, well said. Appreciate that. You've predicted mortgage rates as low as 1% in the near future. Why? Well, I, I don't know if we'll see the very near future, but I think we will see them and I'll give you the case for it. Uh, one of the tr challenges of being in the macro world is you tend to get things right, but you get the timing really wrong. And uh, what I perceive will happen is we will continue to see treasury yields decline. And what that is indicating is that financial conditions are tight. The dollar prison from QE is, is working as intended and that it will eventually bring the stock market back down because this is real important for your listeners to understand is there is a long-term relationship between treasury yields and stock prices. When yields go down, and they don't bounce up because they create lending growth. It tells you financial conditions are tight and they'll continue lower and stock prices will follow. And if you are if you don't believe me, I would encourage you to go back and look at the dot-com bubble and the great financial crisis and you will see this relationship. So what will inevitably happen is the Fed will respond because they understand that lower interest rates mean the financial conditions are tightening. Not quite what everyone believes. I know they believe the opposite, but it does actually mean that. And so the Fed will respond with the one thing and the only thing they can do, which is more quantitative easing. But because we have a shortage of treasury bills, the Fed isn't purchasing T-bills at the moment. They're purchasing notes and bonds. And because the banks actually need some of those two, three, four, or two, three, five, and seven year notes because of the ability, the need to duration match their balance sheet, 
they've been pushing and telling the Fed to go out the curve with their purchases. And so when the Fed recently restructured their QE purchases, they did go out the curve, which tells me the next round of QE is going to be heavy at the long end. And when the Fed comes in and buys a lot, they're going to slam rates down. And they're going to do that. And the mortgage rates are going to fall as well because what the problem is rates right now are too high not creating enough lending growth was where new money is actually created and i believe if you pin 30-year yields at zero or somewhere down there and mortgage rates get down to around one percent i have a prediction you'll see a lot of lending activity yeah and again without pinning you down too much i get the timing issues well what do you think one percent by fall one percent next spring what do you think it just depends at this point how fast yields move down now. Uh, there's We're just now seeing over the last couple of days, the Chinese stock market had lower. Uh, I've mentioned last year that at some point, China will be forced to devalue their currency. It is an inevitable fact that they must do. And perhaps this is an indication that insiders know what's coming in there, getting out of their stock positions. Uh, you know, if you can tell me when 30-year yields are going to hit that low, and, and I, they could be this year, all I know is the Fed will have no choice to react. And if China does devalue, uh, the Fed will eventually come back into play because that will send the dollar high, that will send bond prices higher. And then the other problem is it will send U.S. equity prices lower. The Fed cannot afford for the stock market to go down at this point because that is driving what what is going to be the little spending left is going to come from those people who have you know large stock portfolios and feel very wealthy right now. And the Fed knows if you take that away, you're going to see a lot of spending stop from all the recent boomers who retired and all the other wealthy people who are keeping the economy afloat. Ominous. All right, what's your prediction on where uh, the market and let's say real estate prices will be late in the fall? So equity prices uh, tend to fall treasury yields with somewhere uh, around a, on average, a three month lag. So if treasury yields are headed lower, stock prices should follow. Uh, yields peaked in March, uh, stock prices are running right around a four month lag. That's right within the window. You can see it as long as around six months, as short as, as use the same week. So we're right within that window. Um, my view would be that real estate prices will head lower. And the reason uh, my view on that is, is because a lot of the real estate demand we saw was surprisingly tied right in line with the stimulus checks coming out. So without all the stimulus, and without all, the, I think the demand goes away. And I think we see housing roll over. It's usually one of the last things to fall but I still think it comes down. I don't think the demand holds. Follow up on that. So let's say rates, hypothetically, they, they nosedive down to 1%. You get a 30-year mortgage for 1%. Won't that stimulate another round of frenzied buying for real estate? Yeah, that's generally the view, except the first thing that happens is financial conditions tighten. And with, you know, I think still near 15 million people, maybe it's not that quite that high, maybe it's a little less than that, on some form of extended unemployment benefit. And there's going to be a lot of problems in the economy. And we're not seeing banks want to lend. The, the other factor here is there might be demand to borrow but banks won't be motivated to borrow. It may not be until the government comes in and offers more guarantees on loans or the Fed purchases more mortgage-backed securities before the banks would do that. So that's kind of the, the factor. And we saw that in great financial crisis is yields went down and then the housing market just 
blew up because you know th there's this notion that well you lower yields always make house prices go up well then that, if that's the case then housing prices almost should never go down because in a recession yields fall and generally housing prices fall with it so i, I would expect the housing prices will fall the fed will panic the government will panic because now it'll look like we're headed into a depression and you've got one bullet left in your gun if you're the fed and that is just unload QE at, you know, maybe a trillion a month. I don't know what their number is, but you just go and do as much as you can and hope to drive yields low enough to spur lending growth. But the damage is done at that point because you get financial conditions tighten real quick, everything crashes, and then you have to rebuild. Sounds apocalyptic. All right, let me, uh, you've been great, Stephen. I think in a short period of time, you've, you've put a lot of information. I think listen to this podcast two or three times soak it in. Where can people get in touch with you and, and hear you? That's a great question, Spencer. I'm really easy to find. I have a website, stephenvanmeter.com. My last name is spelled slightly different. It's M-E-T-R-E. -E. You can find me on YouTube under Stephen Van Meter Financial, on Twitter at Meter Stephen, again, M-E-T-R-E Stephen, Facebook, LinkedIn, or just put my name in a search engine and uh, you'll find me. And if you want to check out my investment strategy, you can go to PortfolioShield.net. Great. I really want to thank you, Vi. Very interesting to me, even though I've heard all your podcasts. But I think anybody who's interested, follow Steve Van Meter. Thank you again. Well, thanks, Spencer. It was a real pleasure to be on your show. You're welcome. Everything else that matters. America is clearly a divided nation. With the exception of the Civil War, Americans usually come together in times of crisis. Recent catalysts such as the COVID-19 pandemic and the televised killing of George Floyd have been catalysts for social, political, and economic changes on a scale that hasn't been seen in my lifetime. The divisions in this nation can either be a catalyst to honest discussion, positive change, or a prelude to greater division and chaos. In my quest to see where this country's headed, I set out across the deep south of the U.S. and ended up in New England, asking one simple question. If you were president of the United States for one day and could do one thing to make this country better, what would you do? Join me in this interview segment as we interview America to find out the direction of this country and what matters most to some. While opinions seem to change the farther north I went, you'll be surprised at the answers and the hopes and dreams and fears expressed by many Americans. Where is the love? 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 Many people focused on resolution of traditional domestic issues facing this country. Great. Tell me your name, your occupation, what state you live in. Okay. My name is Luis Sanchez. I'm a truck driver, and I live in the state of California. And the question is, if you were the president of the United States for one day and could change one thing to make this country better, what would you do? Uh, free tuition. Free tuition? Free school for all the kids. Good. Yeah, college. I mean, it's hard enough just to survive on what we'd have high school. And also with college credits, I mean, you can still see people struggling, you know. They want a higher paying job because they gotta pay off these student loans now. But that's that's the hard, I, I say free tuition. Good, you think that would change the country for the better? I mean, for the future, yes. Good, yes. I appreciate that, thank you. Yes, sir, thank you. Ready, please tell me your name. I'm Glenn Walton. And where do you live? I live in Atlanta, Georgia. And what do you do for an occupation? I'm an electrician. Great. If you were president of the United States for one day, 
and you could change one thing to make this country better, what would you do? Build up the military. Good. And why would you build up the military? Because uh, for security reasons, I've got a daughter that's coming up and that's and I just want to make sure that we're stronger than everybody else because this whole world's crazy. Ed Meadows, Pensacola, Florida. I think that I would require all able-bodied individuals uh, receiving public assistance uh, to actually uh, earn that public assistance through some uh, type of uh, public-private partnership in some type of work that would be meaningful for both public and private sector. Kind of like the Peace Corps, JFK Peace Corps type thing, or? That'd be exactly what I'd be thinking about. My name is Pastor Travis Witt. I'm the Director of Strategic Outreach for Liberty University Standing for Freedom Center. If I were President, the thing that I would do is I would create an opportunity to get rid of the national debt. Very good. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hey, uh, my name is Osiga Kaku. Again, Osiga Kaku. I'm from the state of North Carolina. I'm a son of immigrants and I'm a conservative advocate. So I would stop the narrative that college is for everybody and I'll make it mandatory that everybody after high school takes at least one year, a gap year. And during that gap year, what I would want for everybody to do is to work any job where there's a minimum wage job, job that you can get just with your diploma or a girl learner, not learner skill, just work a job. So you work that job for a whole year uh, during that year, we, we want to heavily push and encourage them just to save every penny because they're already living with their parents, not paying any rent. They already don't have big boy bills. <laughs> and I would let them just want them to save that. Maybe by the end of the year, they've saved up 10, oh, maybe almost 20,000, maybe around that area. And then I want them to look at that big chunk of money and think to themselves, is this worth it to spend on a on a college education? This money, so it'll mean more to them when they're in class studying if they do decide. Or they could take that money and keep working, or maybe start their own business, or go learn a trade or a skill. And that's what I'll do as president for a day, if I can do one thing. Excellent. Yeah. Kim Haley Jackson, Belmont, Massachusetts. Great. Universal income. Everyone would have a chance at making a decent living wage yep. and afford basic necessities. What if one person was lazier than the next? What would you do to fix it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. You're welcome. Others focused on the role of the United States in foreign affairs and as a global leader. All right, my name is Michaela Getz. I live in Florida, and I'm a podcaster of the Something Burger podcast. If I were president of the U.S. for one day, I could change one thing to make this country better. What would that be? I... Oh, this is so hard, but you promised me you would edit... But I want to do something related to support of Israel. I think I would lock in funding for the support of Israel. My name is Yasser Maurice from Washington, D.C. And if I could be president for one day. And you could do one thing and to change this country and make it for the better. What would you do? Make it for the better. There's too many things, but I think I, I would focus on our current international policy, that we're, the, how we're dealing with other countries and uh, especially how the United States has lost uh, leadership in the, in the world because so many countries depend from the United States and this, if this nation is stabilized and they don't have direction, clear, clear leadership, then other countries follow and, and uh, yeah, we see lots of terrible things happen in other nations because of a lack of leadership of the United States. That's great, thank you. We even had one congressional candidate in Florida he advised what he would do if he was elected. 
Yes, my name is uh, Ruben Young. I'm a candidate running uh, for Congressional District 23. I'm running against Debbie Watson. And Where is Congressional District 23? It encompasses of Dade County and Broward County down there in South Florida. So that's Florida Congressional District 23. If I was president, I would make all things equal make, and ensure that our rights are protected, our human rights are protected, our civil rights are protected, and that everyone have the, the enjoy the benefits of being an American citizen because this is America. I'm America first candidate, and we need to restore law and order back in this country. So that's what I would do as president. Under our constitution, I would make ensure that the enforcement of this constitution, when it's talk about all men are created equal, they're endowed by their incredible with certain inalienable rights that among which are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. This is this will be my goal for all Americans. Make make sure that our laws are enforced in this country, and make sure that there's no uh, culture can, uh, culture cancers. Uh, in this country, and we'll make sure that what, what we're currently seeing in this country with the lawlessness and the illegal immigration and, and all of these things hold true, I want to make sure that everybody have their have their human rights as well as their civil rights as well as their due process rights and all the rights that they enjoy is because this is America and it's, it should be America first. But by far, the overwhelming number of responses focused on social and political changes that have been polarizing the nation. Hello, here you go. Tell me your name. Jason. Okay, and what's your occupation? I'm a bellman. Very good, and where do you work for? Gaylord Palms. What state do you live in? Orlando, Florida. And if you, Jason, were the President of the United States for one day, you could change one thing to make this country better, what would that be? Um, that's a difficult question. Uh, so I'd have to, I'd have to start with probably not letting everything be offensive. Just because Everyone can feel offended over anything, and it's a privilege now to feel offended, I think. Mm -hmm. So they'd have to make it where we're not celebrating all these the, these occasions that mean really nothing. So is it, is it a free speech thing that you would implement as president, or is it just tolerance for people that have their opinion? Yeah, it'd just be more of a free speech. You can, you can speech it, but we're not celebrating it. You know, if you want to be gay, that's awesome, but we don't need to celebrate a month. If you want to... Be black, or if you're black, we don't need we don't need to have black rights. And if you're whatever, I don't know, religious religion, we don't have to celebrate that. It's, everyone's a person. We should just and like, and the unity that makes everybody celebrate. What would that be? Would it be our national pride as opposed to yeah, individual? Yeah. As in as we live in America, we should just celebrate American pride. Good. So. Good. Yeah. Anything else, President Jason? No, that'll be it. I appreciate you telling me. Thank you. Hello, can you please say your name? Yes, my name is Rosy Orozco. Okay, and where are you from? Mexico, but now I'm living here in Miami. Great, and what do you do for a living? Uh, I am an activist against human trafficking. Great. And if you were President of the United States for one day and could do one thing to make this country better, what would you do? I will end human trafficking. It is slavery. It affects the whole world that the United States is a consumer of human trafficking. My name is Paul Brickman, Dallas, North Carolina. I'm a pastor. And my question to you is, if you were president of the United States instead of a pastor for one day, and you could do one thing to change this country and make it better, what would you do? So on our money here in America, it says in God we trust. We change that, and I would say in Jesus we trust. One of the problems is our, our founding fathers left off his name. If they would have put his name and been more specific, then we wouldn't have all the diversity that we have in religion. So my name is Jorge Piña. I'm a pastor in Washington, D.C. The name of the church is D.C. for Jesus. 
And if I was the president of the United States of America for one day and I could change one thing to make this country better, uh, that would be bringing back the Bible and prayer uh, to the nation and to the school system. Great. Thank you, Jorge. I appreciate it. Good afternoon. Elvia Pena. And the question is what I, what I would do if I would be a president for one day. And you could change one thing. One thing. Yes. I would make just marriage to be between male and female and to marriage to be between male and female. That's it. Great. Love it. Thank you, Elvia. I'm Emily Gallup from Indiana. I am a current vet student and I would open more homeless shelters that allow the homeless to keep their animals. Great, thank you, I really appreciate it. One non-resident suggested that the U.S. should scrap its current federal system and implement 50 separate governments. What's your first name? William. What state are you from? I'm from Switzerland. Well, if you were president of the United States for one day and could do one thing to make this country better, what would you do? I would split up the United States of all 50 states into single countries and make them all independently run. That's very interesting. Why would that make it better? It make it better because having, uh, Switzerland's a great example of how democracy in a small government works better since we are able to listen to everyone at once. If we were to split up such a huge country as the U.S., it would make it way easier to treat certain issues such as racism or inequality in any case by, by having each state just focus on themselves instead of having each state focus on, focus on the whole picture. Great. Thank you. Perhaps Bree of Georgia had the most practical response that might get America to chill a bit and step back from the brink of confrontation. Hi, my name is Bree. I live in Georgia and I work at Bonefish. Here's the question. If you were president of the United States for one day and could do one thing to make this country better, what would that be? I would paint the White House pink. <laughs> <laughs> Many people who responded urged people to take personal responsibility, to turn down the heat and make America a better place. Morgan, Boston, Massachusetts. Great. I would like to make everybody walk in somebody else's shoes for the day. In my opinion, that would help others to really open up their mind and understand that we could all learn from one another and that we don't always understand everybody else's circumstances. Great. Thank you. What's your name? I'm the Great Garibaldi. The Great Garibaldi. Where are you from? I'm from Boston, Brighton. Great. And the Great Garibaldi, if you were President of the United States for one day, could do one thing to make this country better, what would you, the Great Garibaldi, do? Well, I work a lot of people, all they do is complain all day. And what I think you should do is just focus on being a better person rather than complaining about everyone else's mishaps. That's what I would do. Just focus on myself, what I can do to make it a happier place. Would you tell everybody else to like, have a day of meditation or self-realization, self, uh, or how would you do it? No, I wouldn't do that. What I would do is probably make sure my spirit's right and be happy for the day, and hopefully that radiates to other people. Love it, thank you. Finally, my personal favorite, and likely the best possible solution, was from Marty of California. What's your name? Marty. And Marty, where are you from? California. Marty, if you were president of the United States for one day and could do one thing to make this country better, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would make Spencer Shear president of the United States. Crazy lady. <laughs> this is a divided nation. Even so, I think the creativity and the willingness of the American people to discuss problems and work together is there. If there's mutual respect, honest discussion of the issues, and the ability to exercise free speech without fear. We'll examine more responses in upcoming episodes. 
In the meantime, don't hate. Consider what you could do if you were in charge for one day and treat others as you'd want to be treated. Email me if you want to discuss the points that I've raised in this podcast. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, Read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.